Welcome to Rock Rit 28. Hope you're well and great to have you along with us. My name is Armin Savagian, and the purpose behind this podcast project is to document the world of underground rock writing and fanzines. And we do that through interviews with the writers, editors, and publishers. Seems to us these people have an important story to tell and a perspective worth hearing. And this episode is no exception. We have managed to get a hold of one Phil McMullen, who between 1989 and 2005 edited the most excellent Ptolemaic Terrascope magazine. Terrascope has a classic fanzine vibe. It shares the same non-gonzo energy of other great UK fanzines of the 70s, such as Hot Wax and Zigzag. The writing is exceptionally warm, personal, human, amazingly informed. The meat of the mag are deep and rich, long-form articles and editorials that demand the reader's full attention. The writers aren't afraid to go on inspired digressions, and the experience of reading it is not unlike a charming, informal conversation with a friend who happens to have near-perfect musical taste and amazing insights into that music. The mag's focus has been described as broadly psychedelic, but it's actually much more eclectic than that. Over 35 issues, Terrascope covered all kinds of old and new music while having a kind of definable niche. So you get great historical pieces on Spirit, The Groundhogs, Faust, Captain Beefheart, West Coast Pop Art Experimental Band, The Kinks, Tiny Tim even. And you get great coverage of then-current bands like Legendary Pink Dots, Kearns 93, Cul-de-Sac, Dead Sea, Pelt, Wendy and Carl, Bardo Pond, and others. The mag also has an association with Nick Salomon of the great psych band Bevis Frond, whom I referred to as Beavis Frond at one point in the interview. My bad. And for years, I'd thought Salomon was actually Terrascope's editor. Central to the mag's charm are the brilliant artwork and graphics that have the same organic, trippy quality of Greg Shaw's pioneering music fanzine, Mojo Navigator. Lovely to read, lovely to behold. Since 2012, Phil has been publishing Terrascopedia, a full-color digest music publication made entirely by hand in limited quantities using vintage letterpress equipment. It's really one of the most remarkable music mags out there. Phil was good enough to chat with us despite just coming off a bad bout with COVID. Ptolemaic Terrascope is truly one of the most special music magazines ever, and our chat really just scratches the surface. Nevertheless, please enjoy this chat with the great Phil McMullen on Rock Rit. You grew up in Wales. What, where, where is that exactly it's, for, for it's those of us outside of the UK? It's England's smallest city and it's okay. in the, the deep southwest. So it's about 20 miles south of Bath, which is a fairly famous city. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, no, it's a very small city. And that's happened to be where I grew up. So <laughs> I, was, uh, I was only there till I was about um, 12 years old, something like that, quite young. Um, but the, the key thing was that I had no, um, no connection with music whatsoever. And there was, uh, I'm an only child. I had no brothers, no sisters, no friends, um, really that were interested in music. Um, but I, I remember, I think the key thing for me was my grandfather was into, um, serious, uh, classical music, Shostakovich and all sorts of interesting stuff. And I can remember being quite young and we were sat there watching um, a, a pop program on the television and both saying it was awful. And he, he said to me, um, have you ever thought that there's, there might be, um, like, like with my classical music, there's the stuff I'm interested in and there's the popular stuff that everybody else likes. It might be the same with this, you know, and it might be, this is the popular stuff that everybody likes, but, but there might be some other interesting stuff going on. And I was probably only, like I said, about, 12 13 years old something like that really young but it stuck with me 
so there was a there's a, a, a child at school I, I wouldn't say it was a friend it was just somebody I knew at school whose um uncle was in a pop group <laughs> and they were called man and his name was uh, Ray Williams he was in an early lineup of a progressive rock group called man no idea anything about them or anything I was just filed that away in, in my memory banks so then uh we moved um into Wiltshire where I am now actually with my parents parents moved and um this was about 1968-9 or something like that and just really because I had no connection with anybody I, I joined the local boy scouts <laughs> and um drifted towards uh, one of the long hairs in the group had, I think none of us had a uniform between us, but <laughs> it was the 60s. And, and this particular guy, I, I got on really well within the scouts and, and we, got, um, we got asked to go off and, and create a poster for um, a jumble sale or, or some sort of sale, something they were doing anyway. So, so I got invited around to his house and I remember him saying something really strange as we walked into his house. He said, my mum won't let me have any posters on the wall. I thought, well, why would you want posters on the wall? I, I don't know. So and we got to his room, and of course, it was covered in posters. There was, <laughs> I, I walked in, and there was this massive Neil Young. <laughs> and there were all these bands I'd never heard of. And the key was, this, this is a guy called Roger. And the key thing was, he had an older sister, and her boyfriend was a roadie for Led Zeppelin. <laughs> so he had this huge record collection he had he had like 20 lps <laughs> and there at the front at the time yeah yeah i know i know <laughs> there at the front was this record by a group called man i thought i know if i've heard of them <laughs> who they were at here just remembered it and when he played it that's everything dropped into place this was what i've been searching for all my life yeah. this was the music this was the key and we just, and Roger and I just went on a voyage of discovery at the age of 13, 14, or whatever it was. And his, his older sister really was very good to put up with us. Um, she invited us to go in and visit their, their commune. <laughs> and, we, and we met, uh, I think we met the Doobie Brothers because they were, they were roadieing for them at the time. And the, the thing about the Doobie Brothers is they were, they were touring a record called The Captain and Me. And, uh, and they all had big top hats on the cover. And apparently this was a tribute to Captain Beefheart. Oh. So yeah, I, I didn't realize this either. But anyway, so they put some Captain Beefheart on and that opened my mind completely to a whole other level. And then suddenly I was, my, I was interested in all this weird music. I'm always curious yeah. about people's first yeah. exposures to Beefheart. Did it take or did it take a while? <laughs> it, took, it took immediately. Oh, but wow. It, yeah, but no, but bear in mind, this was um, the beef art that nobody likes. This was, um, and what was it? It was probably Blue Jeans and Moonbeams, I suspect. Okay. It was that era. So I worked backwards from there. Yes, yes. <laughs> that's the key. <laughs> so that's kind of how I got into music in the first place. And I, I just, from there on, I, I never stopped. I just, I was exploring all sorts of weird byways and and. And I just knew it was, I'd, I'd arrived, you know, this is the stuff I'd always wanted to hear. And the more obscure it was, the better I liked it. <laughs> <laughs> Were there any good record shops in, in your No, city? there was nothing here at all. No, no, no. There was, um, there was, a, there was a record shop. The, the good thing about it was, if you went in there, you could order things. Mm. Um, so you could, you could get in to get stuff in. So I would order really obscure stuff by today's standards but it was what we were interested in hearing fast forward to 1975 
and I left school and got a job in the city of Bath, which I've mentioned Bath before, mm-hmm. um, which is still only about, it's about 12 miles west of us now, where I live now. Bath had a quite interesting record shop, which was run, and this is 1975, remember, and it was run by an, an old lady. I say old lady, I was like 17, 18 years old. She was probably 40. <laughs> but Back then, she, everybody yeah, is just really yeah. old. And- <laughs> exactly, yeah. So she, um, but she was really, really knew her customers. She was really good. And so I'd go in exploring all sorts of stuff. And then she, she'd say to me, oh, we got the new Captain Beefheart record in. And oh, yeah, we'll have that one, you know. <laughs> and out of booth, you could go and listen to stuff in as well. So, so. Oh, amazing. So, so I, I bought lots of records from this particular shop. And then not long afterwards, probably 1976, maybe, I can't remember the year, Britain at the time was being attacked by the IRA, the Irish Republican Army. Hmm. And there were random bombs going off all over the place. And one of them went off in the centre of Bath. And um, it happened to be, there's a, a shopping mall, not mall, it was, it was called the Corridor. And it was literally a corridor. And it was planted in, the bomb went off in there. And it was right outside this record shop. I actually heard the explosion. And I, I must confess, I actually ran the opposite direction because I was frightened. <laughs> Good natural <laughs> I, instinct, I I'd say. <laughs> yeah, that's what I, I must admit. But I was devastated when I found out it was a record shop that got destroyed. Well, the whole frontage got blown in. But when um, a few days later, going back in back there again, they were sweeping up the glass and the the records themselves were all stored downstairs in the basement. Oh. The, only the covers were upstairs. See, so you'd flick through the covers, you'd take the cover to the desk and they'd go and find you the record and sell it to you. So they had... Literally, their entire stock of covers were shredded <laughs> and they had all these records that were completely undamaged. So they were virtually giving them away. And to this day, I've probably got 20, 30 records here with damaged covers, you know, bits oh, missing from Because <laughs> I got them for next to nothing. I was able to just explore loads and loads of mint condition records that I probably wouldn't have bothered with otherwise, you know, for next to no money from bomb damage. Oh, wow. wow. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> You mentioned your friend Raymond, I think. Um, Roger, yes. And finding yeah, out. Roger, he. Um, Roger, he pardon me. Up, Roger, yeah, he ended up running a record shop, bless his heart. And oh. He, he, yeah, he, um, he still, we, our tastes diver, diverged somewhat as, as we got a bit older. He went more down the, um, not quite the yacht rock, but he went down the Crosby Stills, Nash and Young, and America and Poco, and that sort of route. Gotcha. Uh, yeah, and I, I <laughs> kind of went off into a far more weird route. <laughs> I was exploring sort of formerly Fat Harry and and all sorts of very weird UK bands, almost jazz and stuff, you know. So mm-hmm. I, I got more and more weird as he got more and more yachty. So <laughs> 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 we kind of yeah we stay in touch occasionally <laughs> yeah. still, still see he still lives and still runs a record shop in Wiltshire so oh. I, I occasionally I occasionally cross paths with him nice. after all these years were you reading any music press at the time 1976 77 was when I started um there was a magazine launched in Britain called Dark Star magazine okay yes yeah yeah okay and um that became my bible that was that was i just loved the way it was written and i loved the stuff they were talking about um 
and there was a there was an underground magazine called Zigzag, which I was familiar with, but mm-hmm. it was really hard to find. I always loved it when I could find it. So yeah, but no, Dark Star was the one for me. And there was a guy in there called Steve Burgess. I loved his writing style um, and copied it quite a lot myself <laughs> in the early days, actually. <laughs> he wasn't a very nice person, apparently, by all accounts. I never met him, but, um, but never mind. he's passed on now. So yeah, Dark Star was the one for me. Um, none of the American magazines got over here, so I wasn't aware of Cream until many years later. Hmm. Um, so yeah, in fact, I didn't really start reading American magazines until I till the early eighties when I was actually writing myself. So, yeah. Do you do you think in hindsight that was a good thing? I mean, Cream, it's it's hard to shake off. Not everybody takes to Cream that obnoxious no. kind of in your face style, um, but if it if it gets a grip on you. It's hard yeah. to shake off that. I can, yeah, I can see that. I can see that. Yeah, no, um, I, I, yeah, I, I didn't. I saw it occasionally, and I, I just sort of read other people's copies and, and put it to one side. I didn't really take to it. I must admit, but, but I know what you mean. And there was a couple of um, English papers. There was a New Musical Express. Mm-hmm and the Melody Maker, and one called Sounds as well. Sounds was the more heavy rock side of it. That was quite a cool one. Um, but they they were notorious for slagging everything off. It was, just, <laughs> it was quite entertaining to read, but it was, it, wasn't, it was never very constructive. They didn't like anything. <laughs> so, and I, I learned many years later, it was actually much easier to write that sort of thing. It's, re- it's really easy to write a disparaging review of something. It's harder to be creative and positive about it. I think you're, my sense is you're coming from a very different place of deep appreciation yeah. for, for music, so. not this kind of snide, <laughs> easy to dismiss. Let's yeah, have the respect yeah. of the band kind of. It's, it's kind of pointless, really. I mean, somebody's going to like them somewhere, even if there's only the mums, you know. <laughs> yeah. I understand you got your first break writing about music at Bucket Full of Brains. <laughs> you did. You've done your research. Yeah, that was um, fun enough. That was the man band again. I, I sound like I'm the world's biggest man fan, and I'm not. <laughs> they just kind of weave themselves in and out of my life. I need um, to Google them later and hear what they're all about, Phil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. So um, that was um, a guy I was, I knew it here in Melksham, where I lived, who um, left university and went and got a job in London and found himself sat opposite a guy who was wearing a man band badge. And he said, oh, I know somebody back home who likes them. So this person um, wrote to me, because in those days there was no email or anything, and he, his name was Nigel Cross, and he was starting up a magazine called The Bucket Full of Brains, and wanted to do a feature on man, and was interested to know if I was keen to be involved. And I said, well, yeah, it's my chance to, to meet the man band. Kind yeah. of how exciting is this, you know? So yeah, Nigel, Nigel, it was issue, I think it was issue two of Bucket Full of Brains in 1982. I think that was my debut. Hmm. I started doing doing stuff for him. And, and he, he was very encouraging and, and got me doing reviews and features and articles and all sorts of things. And uh, it was just, it was interesting for me because I was able to share my my passion, um, which which isn't always easy when you live in a, a small town in England there's not too many people around who like the same kind of music really Roger had moved away by then so yeah. <laughs> I like to say that taste has diverged, diverged anyway so um so yeah I found I was able to 
I never lost that excitement discovering something new and wanting to tell people about it and have a have a playing party with a new record, you know. And I think that's um, that's why I started writing about them so I could I could share that passion with people. Yeah. On, on another level, was it fun? Was it kind of a thrill to see your name in print as well, too? Um, yeah, that was pretty wild. <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah, I, I I learned a lot through that because I I learned I could write. <laughs> I didn't really know. I was um, I had a difficult time at school. Um, it, many years later, I discovered I was numerically dyslexic. I had this calcula, hmm. um, so I, I'm sound arrogant, but I'm brilliant with words. I can spell anything and write anything. My English is well above average. And my maths is appalling and it's kind of like one and it, you quite often find that with dyslexic people they're really good at maths because their English is appalling so um and they, they didn't pick up on that at school the only thing was I was in the top English group for and, and everything you know I just flew through it and ended up writing the school play and doing all sorts of stuff and being encouraged in that way well um but I didn't know I had it in me to to be a creative writer until I started doing this stuff with, with Nigel. Yeah. And uh, he encouraged me. And, and I found I had a voice, you know, I could, I could do it. It didn't stop there. So I was just reading some, an, an interview that you did uh, online and the bucket full of brains gig, it sounds like it led to other writing gigs for you as well, Phil. Did, yeah, well, I, I met other people who were doing other things. And I suppose key amongst the people, I didn't mention Fred Mills amongst this, because Fred Mills, um, did some writing for Bucket for the Brains. Um, and he was also writing for an American magazine, rather confusingly called The Bob. <laughs> it's the same, same initials. <laughs> and, uh, That's right. And Fred, oh, I didn't even yeah, think so of that. Fred, yeah, no, I know, it's odd, isn't it? So, so Fred got me a gig writing for The Bob. So he and I, and um, so yeah, we were bouncing lots of ideas off of one another. He was in thrall of a lot of Australian stuff that was happening at that time. <laughs> and I was just as usual discovering all sorts of odd stuff. Did you were they giving you assignments, Phil, or did you have freedom to say, like, I I came across this record or I'd love to do Yeah, it was it was a bit of both, to be honest. They they were, I mean, Bucket Full of Brains, um it changed editors a couple of times actually when I was there. Mm -hmm. Um I also rather confusingly wrote under several pseudonyms of this. I can I can look back at them now and see things I'd completely forgotten I'd written, but I recognize <laughs> my writing style. Yes. It's not credited to my name. <laughs> so I'd obviously I fill gaps for other people and just sort of keep the thing fresh. Um, but they would they would send me, um, they would get the records sent to them to review, and then they'd send me a cassette tape to review the record from, which I always thought was a bit off, really. Oh, no way. <laughs> what a ripoff. Okay. So, so, yeah, that, that kind of that rankled a bit, but it was what it was. Yeah. So, um, so it's around about now that I need to introduce Nick Salomon, the Devil Strong. Yes. Because um, I, I met him at a, uh, he was selling records at a fair in Bath. And interestingly, the man band doesn't come into this story at all. <laughs> <laughs> we'll find a way. No, no. So he was, he was selling records and we just got chatting over the store and discovered we had lots in common. And um, including the fact that his wife's parents lived about six miles up the road from me. So they, they knew this part of the world quite well. 
and would oh, wow. visit quite often. So, so Nick and I would visit, start visiting each other and got to know one another. And we started exchanging tapes of stuff we were listening to. So Nick at that time had a, still does have an unparalleled uh, knowledge of psychedelic rock mm-hmm. and, and the history and the obscure stuff and, and the stuff you know, way beyond anything I knew. <laughs> at that time, what he wasn't so good at was the contemporary stuff. Um, so I, I was turning him on to bands like Wipers, um, who were, you know, who were doing like Youth of America's got flashes of Hawkwind and all sorts of weird shit going on. It's true, uh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Such so a good I was, first, right? I was turning, yeah, that's right. So I was turning Nick on to things like that. So um, we, we kind of bounced ideas off one another and sent each other cassette tapes of stuff we were listening to. And then one day he tagged on something onto the back of it and it was a mystery mystery track and said, you've got to guess who it is. And I had a clue. I said, it's really good. It was me. It was you. It <laughs> I was didn't him. know he was a musician. I had no idea. So <laughs> <coughs> I probably know him for two years and didn't know he played. <laughs> had he started the Beavis Frond at this point? or was, uh, Well, was he, was... Yeah, yes and no, because it was, Beavis Frond was... Um, an old name from a long time ago and they only played one or two gigs i think it was given to them by julian temple i think that was a story oh cool um yeah and um but then nick had um a, what he calls a motorcycle accident i think it was, it was a very small motorcycle but he, um he came off and hurt his arm really badly in fact you can still see the see the way it, it hangs a bit odd even now hmm. um and so he got lots and lots of compensation money at the council and was unable to work and invested that money in, uh, in a porter studio and recording himself a, a Bevis Rond record. So that's kind of how it started. And it was one of those early recordings that I, I heard and was able to sort of um, encourage him. So rolling forward six months or so, I did a feature in a bucket full of brains on, on this enigma that was the Bevis Rond. Um, not actually letting on who it was or anything because <laughs> he didn't even have a record at the time so yeah I, I did that and then um, and then my asthma came out and and it, with that wonderful cover by Psych Bancroft and I think the second record came out as well in a marshland um, and, and Nick was on a bit of a roll with that by then but still not playing live. I think by the time Inner Marshland came out, he had never played live. Oh. He was really, no, he, he, he didn't have a band. He um, was really nervous about, not nervous, but didn't like the idea of what if people didn't like what he was doing. Mm-hmm. He doesn't take criticism too well, doesn't he? Bless him. Um, so he didn't want to get on stage in case he got booed off kind of thing, which he wouldn't have done in a million years. But I couldn't imagine that, that was, happening, but... <laughs> no, I know, but yeah, Nick is a complex person, and I love him very dearly. Yeah, so that that was his that was his big fear at the time. So meanwhile, um, I was given an assignment by the Bucketful Brains to cover a band called Magic Muscle, hmm. who were a '60s band who were reforming and um, doing a series of gigs of cities beginning with the letter B. <laughs> I honestly can't remember why. It's Birmingham, Bristol, Brighton. I don't know. Anyway, the UK play Bath was one of them. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so they were about 10 gigs, all in places beginning with B. 
and they were a really complex band and they hadn't really released it. one of those bands that existed in the 60s that didn't really release any records back then mm. they did lots of recordings they had vague connections with arthur brown vague connections with hawkwind and lots of underground bands um but it so happened the the lead singer of magic muscle mr rod goodway who bless his heart just died a few weeks ago um lived literally up the road from me <laughs> wow. um, we, so I live in a place called Sandridge Road and the Sand Ridge is a hill and he lives the other side of the ridge it's about five miles away he lived there um, so I was given the assignment to get in touch with Rod and get, in, get in an article on, on the magic muscles so I met him and became firm friends with Rod in this case of one riotous night playing lots of records and not doing any work at all and we got to know each other very well um, and Magic Muscle included um, a former colleague of Rod's um, who'd gone on to be in Hawkwind and a guy called Adrian Shaw. And um, he was on bass. And there was, I think it was Twink on drums, who was, used to be with the Pretty Things. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a guy from the records, I think, was involved. There's all sorts of various musicians anyway. <clears throat> to cut a very long story short, they Hugh Gower was their, their guitarist, and he had to go back to America. So they had a couple of gigs booked, and they didn't have a guitarist. And I was sat there with Nick Salomon in London, telling him this story and saying, you know, how about filling in the guitar spot, the Magic Muscle for a date? They get you up on the stage. Mm -hmm. People would love to see you. You could do it in the drum. Yeah, he said, but this it's like twink on drums. It's a legend. I said, he's a nice bloke. You know, it'd be fine. I said, let's ring up Rob Goodway. He said, yeah, but it's three o'clock in the morning. I said, yeah, but I said, yeah, but Rob's, Rob's a night owl. Don't worry about it. He's rock and roll. <laughs> he might be pushing 50, but he's rock and roll. So we rang Rob at three o'clock in the morning, picked up second ring, you know, hello. <laughs> so I put them in touch with each other and Nick did this gig with the magic muscle and that's how he met adrian shaw who ended up becoming his bass player forever in the bevis rond i think the second gig they did was builders of the magic bevis muscle frond <laughs> <laughs> and then the third gig was the bevis frond but it featured magic muscle guys <coughs> and, and they just yeah magic muscle stopped basically and and um and rod goodway and adrian and a, a different drummer became the Bevis Rond and it became a live thing and and that's kind of how it went on stage. That's neat I didn't know that story that's amazing. <laughs> so, um, so meanwhile Nick sat me down and took me by the shoulders and shook me as it were and said you're the best fucking writer in Britain and you're wasted a bucket full of brains, even sending cassette tapes to review stuff from. He's taking a piss. He said, we're going to start our own magazine. Are oh. we upset? <laughs> sure, <laughs> why not? Why not? You know, so we got, we got Bancroft can do the artwork. He's, he's done artwork and they've done, they did some layout stuff together. They, Nick and Bancroft had worked together briefly at one time, so they knew each other in the past. Um, he said, we can do the magic magazine paste up. We've got printers here in Walthamstow. All you got to do is write stuff and send it in. Right. <coughs> so we launched our own magazine. It was one of those um, things where you, a bit like a, a band thinks up a name. 
we had to come up with a name for it. And yeah. I know that this is a question that always comes up, so I'll pre preempt you asking it. Yeah. Where did the name come from? <laughs> yeah. I, one of Mick's songs, and I forget forget which one it is, it's on the first couple of albums, contains a line about the Ptolemaic Isthmus, which is a lovely phrase, like how he sings it, the Ptolemaic Isthmus. And I had a tortoise called Ptolemy. So those two things, somehow we wanted to use that word. And then uh, Bancroft was sketching out some artistic ideas and he came up with this old man with a curly telescope. And, um, and the telescope was looking at the earth and I, I came up with Terrascope, Terra Firma Telescope. Yeah. Ptolemaic Terrascope, you know, we just fell about laughing, it was a stupid name. It's probably only gonna last two issues anyway, so <laughs> we'll go for it. <coughs> so we, um, Woronzo were doing a compilation album called Woronzoid at that time. Which and is, that is that is Nick's record label, is that right? Yeah, that's his own record label. So what we did was we printed off a flyer, um, which I've actually got the original paste-up artwork of it, and oh, popped no it way. inside Woronzoid, every copy of Woronzoid, and said, we're going to launch a magazine. If you're interested, send us a couple of quid and we'll send you a magazine. Yeah. And um, bizarrely, people did. So <laughs> we had enough money to get started. And we did, the, we did the first issue. And I remember um, I got a phone call from Fred Mills in America. And um, he was blown away by it. He said, this is, this is going to become a, a huge thing. I said, no, it's probably going to last about three issues, Fred. <laughs> We're going to run out of ideas soon. But no, he was convinced. He was right as well. It just it took on a life of its own very quickly. <laughs> it, it felt fully formed like and and there was also I was reading the masthead of the first issue and you guys there was some ambition there so in the first issue you guys were already offering four issue subscriptions to we were customers. yeah no, so oh, that was a huge mistake there, yeah. there's a gutsiness <laughs> there I love it it was it was subscriptions that killed the magazine in the end but that's a oh. that's, another, that's a whole story for a long way further down the line yeah, we did the subscriptions. We 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 knew what we wanted to, well, we knew what we didn't want to cover, um, and we we just wanted to be different than other magazines. Basically, mm -hmm. um, it, it seemed like I've, I've said this several times in print. It seemed like every other magazine covered one type of music or one genre or just one band. You know, the Fairville Convention magazine or the Pink Floyd magazine. Or That's right. Whatever. Yeah. But most people's record collections aren't like that, you know, they, they cover a little bit of blues, jazz, rock, psych, folk, all sorts of odd things. <clears throat> and we just wanted to do a magazine that reflected the stuff that we were interested in. And our interests were primarily Nick with his deep knowledge of psychedelia. Mm -hmm. um, and his, his favourite ever band was The Savage Resurrection. So I, my ambition was one day to get a Savage Resurrection interview, which I did, I'm very pleased to say. Yeah. Um, Bancroft had immense knowledge of folk music, um, really quite deep, much, much deeper interest in folk music than I did at the time. I've kind of developed it over the years, but I couldn't have told you the difference between Robin and Barry Transfield back then. But, um, he, he knew his stuff inside out. And so that, that was a useful angle to come from. And, and I was just all over the place, obviously, talking about new bands and old. And, and that, was, that was another key to it. We wanted to discuss new artists alongside established ones mm -hmm. um, and magazines don't do that you know they, they either cover all old stuff or new stuff but to us it, it all belongs you know so we just threw it all in and um 
And to start with, we I think the first two issues, we talked to people we knew. <laughs> and then we started getting offers from other people. And then it just, like I say, just was a life of its own. There's some incredible stories, how we found some of the people. A lot of it was through our readers. And they would say, you know, I'm, I'm, I went to the pub the other night and you never guess who was working behind the bar. He used to be in Blonde on Blonde in 1972. So yeah, that's a <laughs> just like, yeah. We found, just found people all over the place. And bearing in mind, it was all pre-internet. So finding people was really hard. Yeah, um, I mean, you, you guys had some really major scores, like early oh, in the, the magazine, you would yeah. have like Charlie Watts, like within the first couple <laughs> yeah. issues. Yeah, it's like started. Randy California of Spirit. Yeah, like. Randy. Well, I was a huge Spirit fan, so that was really that was a really nice one for me. Yeah, um, um, yeah, we did those. Um, we also had a bit of a habit of killing people as well, which is the <laughs> <laughs> If you look at the if you look at the list of people we interviewed, yeah. and then look at the number of people who died shortly afterwards, it's <laughs> quite worrying. But of course, a lot of it's because they were old when we interviewed them. So like, all of it is. But yeah. I mean, like, like Vivian Stampshaw, he, he died like weeks later. We had no idea when we interviewed him. He was, oh, was jeepers. So you guys had the last yeah. interview. Yeah, we had the last interview with him. I think David Ackles was another one. Um, oh, there was loads, loads and loads. And David Graham, lots of them. And I think the worst one of all was when somebody got in touch with me and he said he, was, um, he, was, he lived in California and he was a, a hospital orderly. Mm-hmm. And we've had um, we've had John Cipollina in, in, admitted um, into hospital. He's, he's on my ward, and would you like me to get a chat with him? And I thought that'd be really nice, you know. Said, yeah, because I can just sit on my night shift, you know, so I can just interview him, put his music, and that he's nice to talk to. So we get this John Cipollina interview. And three days later, he died. <laughs> everybody, everybody else was doing obituaries, and we were doing like. Here's, here's his final interview. It didn't sound like he had laws for this world. From his in death any death way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is horrible in retrospect. But it's quite... <laughs> yeah, just the way the terrorists did things. <laughs> oh man! Find these people. Yeah, and some some of them became firm friends. I mean, Tom Rapp's probably the best story of all because he he was just and he was dead before we interviewed him. I'll try to explain that. He was announced, in, I think it might have even been in Dark Star magazine. Um, mm. They announced he died in, in the 1970s, late 70s, 79, 1980, something like that. And um, and he hadn't. <laughs> he actually, he'd retired from music completely. He'd become, he'd become an attorney. Oh. Um, he'd actually learnt law, become an attorney. And his specialism was representing people who were unfairly dismissed from work and their jobs. Nice. And this Terrascope reader got in touch with me and said he's, his wife's been dismissed from her job. And um, the attorney she's been appointed is a guy named Thomas B. Rapp. He said, I think it's the same person. Girls <laughs> before swine. I said, no, <laughs> it can't be. It's an unusual name. Let's have his phone number. And I rang, and it was. It was the same guy. And he laughed and said, yes, he remembered reading his own obituary all those years ago. <laughs> but he, he'd left music altogether. <laughs> and that was that, was, um, that was that, really. So lovely guy. We became firm friends. I did this really nice interview with him. And then, um, which was, 
people loved. I mean, the, the fact that Tom Rat was such a hero in Pearls Before Swine was such a respected band. And uh, lots and lots of musicians were really excited to see he was still alive and still still complimentous and, and telling really funny stories as well. Yeah, so, the, um, these interviews just left no stone unturned. Like you were yeah, finding these, tremendous, these yeah. obscure people who mm. had been forgotten, but their yeah. music was still cherished by so many people. Mm. And you got them to tell their stories, maybe for the only time. Yeah, no, I think it probably was for the only time. The same with the Silver Apples as well. That was another one. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we found those guys, and uh, yeah, lo lots and lots of them. We found them and we interviewed them, and, and it was it was fun. It was a fun thing to do. But it became. <clears throat> I'm going to tell the Terrascope story in a minute, um, but I'm just going to run forward to the to the end of the Terrascope because it became um, a huge weight on my shoulders. Yes, to maintain the spontaneity of it and the originality of it. And I was always wondering if I was going to feature something and people like the same problems Nick had years ago. People would just suddenly start pointing and laughing and saying, no, you've gone too far with this. And they're, they're a bunch of shit. You never liked them. And why are they in the magazines? And, and because I was always interviewing people that nobody else had ever interviewed, it was, it was kind of became my responsibility to try and win people over to that artist. And, and the same with the new ones that were coming through. I mean, some of the stuff Nick hated, he, he, I, I, he did, I won't say who it was, but he described one guitarist as sounding like he was playing with boxing gloves on. Creative <laughs> <laughs> differences, you could say then? Or? Yeah, yeah. And, um, and he, he really didn't get Neutral Milk Hotel at all. He just <laughs> did not understand that. He didn't yeah. say it was tuneless and just horrid. He did, couldn't stand it. But he said, but he stood by me, he said, if, if, if you think this is good, then we'll go for it. You know, we'll cover it. And yes. um, because the, the rest is history. You know? But there's, there was that responsibility. I, I kept getting it right. And I, would just, I kept feeling like I was riding my luck all the time. And I was going to fall off at some point very soon. And then um, the thing about the subscriptions, the, um, the costs went up. And it turned out that nearly all our readers were in America. And it's oh. kind of stupid producing a magazine in England and posting it to America. <clears throat> and the subscription money ran out. You know, so you get you'd have a four issue subscription, and I'd spent it all for the first issue. But the rest, the other three, I'd have to send people out of my own pocket, and it was it was crazy. But, so we did a bit of fundraising. So we started out with um, the Square compilation. Well, the dogs didn't start barking. Um, which was a uh, we started out. It was going to be um, if it was going to be an LP originally because I do like vinyl. But it became a CD. It was going to be a CD. And then we had so many bands getting touch, it became two CDs. So. That's right. Yeah. I remember yeah, my that. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and we just really, we just said to people, we're struggling here. You know, we, we've written about you in the past. Can you maybe give us a song? And everybody was so kind. And we got a quite a snotty letter back from um, REM's management company saying no, basically. Mm. And then Peter Buck sent me a song anyway, so you love this film. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> and, and, and the same with Robin Hitchcock. And there's some quite major names on there that sort of we picked up on the way up, you know, and, and uh, luckily they remembered us and they gave us a song. So, so Sucker came out. It was a single CD in Japan. I don't know if you realise that. It got reissued in Japan as a one CD set. And I had no say in what songs they missed out. It was a really interesting compilation. 
you know, I don't quite know how they arrived at what they arrived at, but there you go. <laughs> so then that got reissued by Fly Daddy Records. Oh. Which were in America, who were two guys who I think used to work with Sub Pop and had gone solo and started up their own Fly Daddy. Um, and they'd moved across to the other side of America as well. And it was them who came up with the idea of doing a benefit gig on top of suckers. So we got all these bands and there was, I can't remember the name, one of them. It was a band, I can't remember. Somewhere over on the East Coast anyway, um, who had this warehouse space, Fee Majestic they were called. And they had a warehouse space in, um, where was it? Providence, Rhode Island. And they said, we could use this warehouse space to do a benefit gig one evening. <laughs> Maybe on a Saturday night. I said, yeah, that'd be fun. And, um, and more and more people started wanting to play and ended up becoming just, instead of a Saturday night, it was going to have to be a Saturday all day, basically. And then suddenly, lo and behold, it became a Saturday and a Sunday. And then there was a pre-gig on the Friday night as well. And <laughs> it just... As with everything, Terrascope, it just took on a life of its own, basically. I'd like to say I created it, but I didn't. It just, it just happened. <laughs> and, and Nick we said, I chatting chat to Nick, and he was saying, you know, we ought to go to this. This sounds fun. Let's take the Pepe Strombomer for the first ever US gig. And I think, yeah, it'd be fantastic. Oh, wow. And um, Flying Sorcerer Attack came as well, who mm -hmm. didn't like at all. He couldn't stand Flying <laughs> Sorcerer Attack. Didn't like the person, didn't like the music, but that's fine. That's okay. <laughs> um, that was the other British contingent. And there was a band called The Alchemists, um, whose, um, I think one of them volunteered to drive as well. That's quite cool. Anyway, so we all, off we went, doing we this big trek across America. Not realising that Providence is, um, uh, was at the time sort of a little bit corrupt, shall we say. Mm. <laughs> we, had, we had this warehouse, we had it all organised, we had the, all the permits and everything in place. And then on the Friday when it launched, the fire chief came along and said, you haven't got permits. He said, yes, we have. He said, yeah, but they're not signed by me. I said, they're signed by the fire chief. He said, yeah, but he's not around today. I'm the fire chief. You've got to pay $3,000 or you're not going to have this event. <laughs> so, it's, it's, it's the way Providence works, apparently. So, um, what I also didn't know is that we, um, we had a bar concession that's been run by the mafia so they they were looking after themselves basically i, I wasn't aware of all this <laughs> i just i just knew we had some big blokes doing the bar <laughs> so so anyway so various palms were greased and things happened and wheels turned and and the first terror stop took place and was a big success didn't make any money at all but that was kind of not the point an excuse for a party <laughs> it was it was and it was yeah so one of the, and there's so many amazing things happened there, but one of the most amazing things was, was um, I very cannily put a place on the bill for a guy called Shy Camp. It's a very clever name when you think about it. He was Shy and Camp. And <laughs> his name was David Rapp, but it's Tom Rapp's son. I thought there's a good chance that Tom Rapp would come and watch this and I could get to meet him. And he was living in Florida, I think, at the time. It was a bit of a job for him, but sure enough, he did. 
and um, and he actually got up on stage and said a few words. <laughs> it wasn't a dry eye in the house. It was just ridiculous, you know. And then he picked up a guitar for the first time in 25 years, literally, and, and strummed it and, and sang a few words. And people just collapsed. <laughs> it, was just like, it was just one of those incredible moments. You know? wow. It was amazing. Yeah. So, so I, I kind of realised then the difference that music can make to people. What did did the terror stock become a regular thing then, Phil? Um, well, no, there was a lady, it wasn't intended to, <laughs> especially the amount it cost to put on and the fact that it made no money and it was a nightmare. But um, there's a lady called Rinky Chine who ran uh, managed Aquarius Records in San Francisco. Hmm. And San Francisco, you know better than I, I do, is, is a fair old way from Providence, Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. 3,000 miles, something like that. So no, she, um, <clears throat> she taught herself to drive, bought a car, and drove across America. That was her first ever journey to be at Terrestock <laughs> from San Francisco across to Providence. And she sat me down and she said, This is the most fucking amazing event, and we're going to happen, make it happen in San Francisco next year. Yeah. Are we? I said, Just go along <laughs> with it. <laughs> okay, Wendy. So I had, um, I really, really wanted um, a San Francisco ballroom. I wanted to replicate the Avalon and, you know, the <clears> stuff, from, stuff from the past. And I had this dream of um, the guys from Ghost playing. Oh, wow. Um, because, I knew that, because Curry Harrow was like the, the closest thing you ever get to seeing John Cipollino play guitar. It's just incredible. And I, that, that was my vision. That was my dream. I really wanted a ballroom in San Francisco. I wanted to recreate the whole the, the West Coast psychedelic scene. And I wanted Ghost there. And Bevis Rond and all the various people I'd enjoyed seeing at um, the first terrace stop. So that, that, was, that, was the, that was the plan. Needless to say, hardly any of it came off, but it's fine. <laughs> okay. um, again, the uh, venue we chose was turned out to be corrupt again it was fire regulations mm -hmm. um they said they could get 800 people in there which was true but not all at once <laughs> and not all in one room either so i think it was three weeks to go we had to find another venue and um the only one they found windy worked really hard on this and she found a um a place no, it, it was the industrial centre out on the, the ocean. And it, it was being used as a film studio. So it was a huge cavernous place that was painted white, basically, the ocean behind it. And the only problem with it was that it had a previous booking for Saturday night. We could have it for Friday, all day Saturday, and all day Sunday, but we had to be out Saturday night, which is okay. These things are challenges are sent to try us. So then, <laughs> so then we um, then we discovered that of course everybody, all the bands and everybody in the and the people we'd invited were booked into hotels in the city, which was quite some way from this Melwood Centre, right? middle of nowhere. Um, so we got shuttle buses we hired, um, which basically did a tour every hour, I think, from the city, free for any anybody who wanted to go sort of day and night. They could do it from the shuttle around. And that kind of became an event in itself. There was a party on the bus. There were bands playing on the bus that weren't even invited to be at the festival. There was all <laughs> sorts of stuff happening on the buses, apparently. There was a whole 
event in itself. Amazing. And yeah, it was. And then um, on the on the Saturday, we had to sort of be break break down the stages at five pm, clear the place out completely, and then come back the next morning. And um, I can't remember which bands it was, but a couple of them put on warehouse, literally warehouse parties. So there was all sorts of stuff going on on the Saturday night um, that we had no control over at all. But lots of our audience just went off and did all sorts of it. Apparently, it was amazing, amazing Saturday night. <laughs> completely uncontrolled but we managed to to have a festival <laughs> and it was it was by all accounts one of the best we ever did apparently and I enjoyed it it was it was some scary moments I think um Alistair Galbraith from New Zealand lovely mm. guy lovely guy but I didn't realize he's a complete nutcase he he uh, went and bought himself an inflatable boat and sort of paddled himself and various bands out onto the ocean and there's you sort of see this little figure bobbing around the water, and there's half half of our superstars all bobbing around the little boat on the ocean with Alice Galbraith drunkenly waving a bottle or something. Oh God, the insurance is just a nightmare. But never mind. <laughs> Bless them. Sounds like a lot of things. I mean, if you're putting on a psych themed something yeah, of this yeah. scale, psychedelic themed, people from all over the place. Yeah. It sounds like there's going to be some things going on <laughs> there's that going to be a lot of fun planned for it. Yeah, yeah. Pelt, Pelt turned up on motorbikes. I remember that. That was quite fun. The whole oh, man. Side. Yeah, they, they were good guys. Anyway, yeah, so lots of, lots of good stories. So, um, so yeah, the second, second Terrasol was a big success in lots of ways. Again, it didn't make any money at all, but it, was, it didn't lose anything. So that's the main thing. Um, that was the one I turned MTV away from. <laughs> what, say that again? I turned MTV away from that one. MTV, they, they came, yeah, they wanted to yeah, cover. Yeah, they came, they wanted a film. I can't remember who it was, they wanted to film. Milk Hotel or something. I can't remember. But, um, I turned them away at the door because we'd sold out. They didn't have tickets. And they yeah. just rocked up. It's, we're MTV. I have got tickets. You're not coming in, guys. Sorry. Yeah, wow. But do you know who we are? <laughs> not a fucking clue. <laughs> I'm English. <laughs> not something they're used to, I imagine. No, no. So they didn't come in. <laughs> nice. I love it. sold out. <laughs> what could I do? Yeah. So then I thought, this was, this was my big mistake. I thought, you know, we're a British magazine. We really ought to emulate this success in, in Britain somewhere. Mm -hmm. And um, so the third terrorist stop was in London. It's an absolute disaster because nobody went. It was expensive. The venue was expensive. The hotels were expensive. Yes. It's, the city is expensive. Um, I was just stubborn. I wanted to make it happen. And um, I shouldn't have done. And I should have listened to Nick, who told me, stop this immediately. <laughs> it was just stupid. No, I'm stubborn. I'm making it happen. It's, it's my dream. I want to see. And it, um, it's become one of those legendary events, which if everybody who claims they were there was there, it would have been a huge success. But actually, about only 200 people went over the course of a weekend. <laughs> just, um, and I remember... Um, I remember working on the office, I think it was on the Saturday morning, and we, we brought Bardo Pondo from, from America, from Philadelphia for their, their debut UK gig. And I had a guy phone up, an English guy phone up in the morning and said, what time's Bardo Pond on tonight? I said, half, half past 10. And he said, so excited, it's his favorite ever band. And he obviously never seen them before. Really excited about Bardo Pond. 
He said, half past 10. I said, said, put the last train back to Guildford at half past 11. Can't you make it a bit earlier? I said, no. Half past 10 is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. So he didn't come. His favourite band, because the last train back to Guildford, and he wasn't going to stay overnight to do it. And I just thought, just ridiculous. Then I walked out into um, the auditorium, and there's a guy stood there looking very lost. And um, I quickly realised he was blind. So I went up to and introduced myself to him and I said, there's actually nothing happening on this stage at the moment, but if you'd like me to show you through to stage one, there'll be a band starting over half an hour's time. He said, no, I've arranged to meet a friend of mine here in stage two. He said, well, I better wait here, stage two, and my friends will fight me. I said, that's fine. I said, where have you come from? And he said, oh, it's Minnesota he'd come from. Big fan of Azusa Plane. And like, not exactly the world's biggest band, but he's from Minnesota, he's a big fan of Zeusa playing, and he's blind, and he found his own way um, to Heathrow, to central London, to the venue, to stage two, to meet his friends, blind. And I was thinking, going through my head was the last train back to Guildford at 10 o'clock tonight. I thought, I just don't deserve this. You know, nearly all the audience are American, they travel to it, they love this sort of thing. Yeah, and we had Europeans, and we and just just wrong doing it in Britain. It was just wasn't right. It was a stupid idea in retrospect, and it wasn't supported. Don't know why. <laughs> but the two hundred people who were there must have had the time. Oh, the other amazing time. Oh, yeah. The other good thing about it was it had three stages. So um, this is a bit like the, um, the the bus tours in San Francisco. The third stage became a sign-up stage. And there was all sorts of jams going on. There bands playing with one another. The, yeah. You know, the Tom Rapp and the Spacious Minded a set. And um, I can't remember there's, I think the Lilies might have been there and they weren't even on the bill. There's all sorts of bands playing up there. There's lots of jamming, lots of things happening. And I, I think there was a bit of a problem in that some, sometimes there was something really exciting going on upstairs. And the bands downstairs on the main stage weren't having much of an audience because <laughs> everybody was upstairs watching something that was unscheduled. But never mind. <laughs> Did you get to enjoy any of this yourself, well, Bill, with all the I, uh, I, planning uh, that you had to do? Did you actually get to sit down and say, ah, I'm going to I'm gonna take in Bartopo on set? I learned that. Yeah, I learned that later. I, I didn't originally. No, the first few I didn't. But I, I did learn later on to take time out and enjoy some of the stuff. Um, I think... The, the one in the last one actually in Kentucky was the one that really did that for me. That was an outdoor one, bizarrely. And I'd always said we'd never do it outdoors, but they said, no, it never rained in Kentucky, you'll be fine. Mm. They actually, actually threw it down in a hell of a storm. But never mind. <laughs> but I can remember sat there watching, I think it was Mono from Japan. And they were just going into one of their long, slow numbers, and the fireflies were buzzing around, and just a beautiful atmosphere. Mm. And yeah, I really enjoyed that. By that time, I, was, I learned to enjoy it myself. You know. but, um, During this whole time, yeah. the magazine is still coming out, Phil. The magazine came out all the way through, yeah, and a lot of it I was paying for it myself. <laughs> so coming out of pocket. <laughs> yeah, no, I, 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 I should have I should have stopped, really. And I was, I, I was um, in a dark place, quite frankly. I was just stubbornly going on, doing stuff, and... Uh, Nick will tell you he turned his back on it and had nothing to do with it anymore, um, which is not quite true because he was still uh, mastering the CDs for me and still delivering copies around shops in London. 
That's um, right. You guys were putting out compilation CDs with each yeah, issue. Yeah, so yeah. With every issue was yeah. was quite an event. Yeah, it was. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and he he did the mastering for that, and he didn't. Again, he didn't like half the music on there, but he he respected my opinion, so he yeah. wrote what was on there. And it eventually it just got too much. It nearly broke my marriage, my bank, my everything basically. Yeah. And um, and I admitted defeat. And so I think it was issue thirty-five. I think I said, "Can somebody not come and help?" <laughs> mm-hmm. And it was Pat Thomas from America who st- stood in. Um, he very kindly said, "Well, I'll take on the magazine and, and publish it and start it again and um, take on all the not the debts. I just carried on playing off the credit cards, but um, but he he honoured the subscriptions such as they were." How Sadly, long did they? It put one issue. That's so it. Just that, just that the one issue. And he ever did one issue. Yeah, which is kind of it was a bit sad. <coughs> but in, in a way, it felt like, well, it, because one issue existed that somebody else had done, I'd drawn a line under it and I I you know I'd finished with it. Yeah. Um, I was still doing the online presence, which is, is not really my thing, the online stuff, I must admit. Um so I Terrascope Online kind of just became, I, I replicated some of our old interviews. I did a few interviews that people submitted and some reviews, basically. It just became a reviews thing. And, yeah, uh, there's still monthly monthly reviews. There is, yeah, that's still there. Um, but, <laughs> but that's not mine either now. I don't know, there's a, there's a <laughs> the Terrascope, <laughs> the Ptolemaic Terrascope was um, bought lock, stock and barrel for the princely sum of no pennies whatsoever. Um, by the guys from Fire Records, um, this is James from Fire, which is the Bevisron record label, curiously enough. Um, and they uh, came to me in 2019, and they have big, big plans, which of course got scuppered by COVID and lockdown and everything else. So they, they really, they want to, they've got all the rights, they've handed everything across to them, all the, all the words, all the music, all the old CDs, master tapes, everything they've got. All the live stuff from Terror stuff. Um, they are hoping to do um, a new magazine, a new LP with a magazine in it. If you know what I mean? So it's like a, a like a boxed set that's got pages in. So it's like a magazine and an LP thing. Oh wow! That was, that was the plans. And um, so there's going to be a new Ptolemaic Terrascope one day. Don't know when. Obviously, take a lot of um, time and effort and all sorts of things. Um, yeah. And they're going to they're republish some of the, whether it's in book form, I don't know, but some of the old stuff's going to be republished as well. And were they the ones who digitized some of the old issues? No, I did all that. No. You did all, wow, that's, yeah, I did, that's I did a real labor of love. Yeah, I, yeah, it was, yeah, I took that. Um, and then handed it across to them, basically, and, and drew the line underneath, and that's, it's all theirs now. But of course, it hasn't happened because of COVID and lockdown and all sorts of and time's moved on. They are paying for the Terrascope online website, so they it's just a monthly fee just to keep it going. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I pop reviews, not I don't write much myself on there anymore. Um, so Terrascope online, because at some point they're going to obviously rebrand it, and it's become a new Terrascope. It's going to lose the Ptolemaic, but it's just going to become the Terrascope. Yeah. Um, and that's that's the plan. But how far progress those plans are, I don't know, because I don't talk to them too often. 
are you are you kind of at peace with that, Phil, to have it yeah, out of I'm your hands? Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, because books? I well, yeah, because I decided before then. This is where the Terrascopedia comes in. Um, yes. that I I didn't like the online stuff, and I was I was missing the contact with people. I was missing doing a magazine um, yes. and sending it to people and getting emails back or letters back or whatever. It just that just that human interaction. And so I, I sat there and thought, how, how can I, I could Xerox a magazine or I could, I could just try it myself. And then suddenly dawned on me, let's get a printing press and make a magazine from scratch, <laughs> which is an insane idea. But then you, you're starting to learn I'm full of those insane ideas. Um, <laughs> Have so you I actually taught, taught myself letterpress printing. And, um, you had, had no experience with it. I had no experience. No, I had no experience whatsoever. No, I bought a small hand tabletop hand press and some secondhand type, and just taught myself how to print on. I think it was old news newsprint. There was the paper I used to start with. Huh. Um, blank blank paper they used to make newspapers, which end of roll cut off so I could get hold of. Um, how just, old is the letterpress itself? Do you know approximately? Um, yeah, so the the machine I've got now it was built in 1923, so it's nearly 100 years old. Uh huh. So this is a much bigger one than the older one I had, than the first one I had. The first one was a little hand tabletop one, mm -hmm. um, and I, I've grown that. I've got a big, big press now that's intended for making books. In fact, it's the same machine that Virginia Woolf had. Um, they printed several books on on, on the Arab press, the same as mine. So yes, yeah, it's certainly big enough and manful enough to make a magazine on. Um, but I had to learn from scratch how to do it. And then I had to tentatively stick it out there and see if anybody was interested. And um, I could only make 150 copies. <laughs> that's the most I can do. because it just, it just takes so long to crank these It just out. takes so long. Yeah, that's right. It's just ridiculous. Otherwise, <laughs> there are limits to my stupidity. <laughs> no, no, I mean it's it takes so, it takes it takes seven hours a page to type <laughs> seven hours a page. Good grief! Yeah. So it's interesting to see how uh, Terrascope was this like it would take you hour upon like hours oh, to, oh. to read an issue, whereas uh, Terrascopedia you could read the entire thing in less than an hour. You can, um, really, yeah, it's only small. It would yeah. it would be unrealistic to to letterpress. Yeah. I know, I know, it's, it's, fifty it's page difficult. giant yeah. publication. Um, yeah, but it does make you much more <laughs> just, careful it's with my way of communicating with people and, and making a little work of art. Mm -hmm. It's my tribute to the arts and crafts movement, which I've always been fascinated by all that whole era. And um, I, I love a, a Broadian 1920s. I love the typography and the lettering. I always have to. A lot of that's in the, the old Ptolemaic telescope. A lot of those little images and all sorts of things date back to that time. Yes. Uh, so there's kind of there is a continuity there. Oh yeah, the visuals were always there and uh, strong yeah. in, uh, then, in Ptolemaic Terrascope as well. But too. then the Terrascopedia, the, the weird thing about it was as soon as it got out there, the people that were reading it, I recognised their names as Terrascope subscribers and years ago. A lot yes. of them were at the same address. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the family's all back together again. <laughs> it's almost like there's only 500 people in the world who are interested in this sort of thing. And you just you find them and you just sort of feed them every now and again. Well, it's, it's, it's kind of like doing a podcast on fanzines as well, too. Sure it is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Very similar for you. Find your tribe. You do, yeah. 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 
<laughs> I imagine with just 150 issues, it sells out quickly and, and some people are left it, quite disappointed. Um, it balances itself out somehow. It, I, I yeah. suppose some are, yeah, but usually long after the fact. I, I've had one, the latest one, issue 19, has been out for about a week now. And there weren't any inquiries yesterday or the day before. Okay. But I can, I can guarantee in, in about a month's time, I'm going to get loads of inquiries. Oh, I've missed it. Yeah, sorry. That sounds great. But there's, I've got a, a mailing list I maintain. It's got 180 people on it. Um, and I tell them as soon as there's a new issue. Um, and there's only 150 copies, but somehow it balances itself out because not everybody wants every copy, and some people are only interested in mm -hmm. band or type of music or whatever. So it kind of it works itself out somehow. It sells out usually in 24 hours, but that's that's what keeps it going. It doesn't again. It doesn't make much money. It's not about making money, but it, it pays for the, the papers. Horrendously expensive, and the post is expensive, and it's the same situation. Most of the readers are, are abroad. Most of them tend to be. In, we've got a lot of readers in America. Yeah. Um, bizarrely, a lot of readers in Norway. I never ah. quite figured that one out. Norway is a huge market for the Terrascope. It's um, interesting. Which is nice. Yeah. <laughs> there, there's only one other magazine I know that prints in this way, Phil. It's oh, called the, the Match. Okay. In in, uh, in Tucson, Arizona, it's this anarchist libertarian guy, Fred Woodworth. He's been yeah. publishing since the '60s. Right. And he puts out this thing called The Match, which is just his ramblings and rantings, page, page upon page. Uh, yep. He does it. He does it using this process. Like he he's a vocational like letterpress printer. Like this is what he oh, does. Right. Yeah. But he also has like these principles. Like it's a principle like I, I don't <laughs> want to use digital technology. Um, <laughs> I want this like he has no computer. I don't think he even has a phone. Really? <laughs> But he puts out the match and another one called Mystery and Review Series, something it's around uh, Hardy Boys style, like boys literature from back in the day. So they're, they're beautiful publications. Um, the tone is not always perfect. That uh, he's, he's a bit of a, he's got an edge to him, but beautiful publications. And until Terrascopedia came around, I had not seen anything quite like that. Tremendous. If somebody in Hong Kong was um, inspired enough to do their own, um, covering the Hong Kong music scene. Um, oh, cool. But that's got, yeah, that's, that's got a letter, letterpress cover, but that's all. It's only the cover. Not the, it's <laughs> the, the, not the, the insides. insides all, no, the insides are all digitally done, yeah. That takes commitment. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> commitment. And are you doing other projects with your letterpress as well, Phil? No, not really. No, I do some in, inserts for records and things like that occasionally. Mm -hmm. Um, but I work full time as well, <laughs> rather bizarrely. I've always worked full time alongside all of this stuff. Um, it's just a hobby, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So, no, I don't really have time at the moment, but I'd like to. Yeah, I, I do. And printing's very addictive. I can spend hours and hours and hours just setting something up and printing it. And, and I love doing it. I, I think it's having that audience and knowing those telescope people are right there who sort of who, who are quite happy to. To read what it is I write, and like I say, it's not much. It only takes an hour or so to read it, but it's they're happy with that. The one issue I ordered, I think, from you last summer or a year and a half ago, I I've read many times. I, I just enjoy holding it in my hand, and my wife right. and I just kind of gawk at it, Phil. So it's it's a real beautiful art object, and the words mm. are 
as always, just amazing. Well, and just you. more carefully chosen now as well, too. Like yeah, they are. Well yeah. curated content because you have to be selective with uh, You have to be very selective. Process. It's, it's taught me a whole different way of editing as well. Um, it's, it's a completely different way of doing things. Um, because you can, you can I, I normally do put stuff out on a, on a computer, first of all. I lay it out myself so I know how many words are going to fit the page. Mm-hmm. Um, I can I can tweak it, tweak the column width and the word count and all the rest of it. But what I can never take account of is um, because you've got a tray of type, um, a case of type, uppercase, lowercase, all that stuff. It all comes into it. Um, and when you get to the end of a page and you realize you've run out of letter K's <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and suddenly you've, and you've got the word like on the last line. You think, oh, I've got to think of a different word. Yes. <laughs> That's got a K in it. So you kind of find yourself editing literally on the fly just to just, just to make make up the fact that you've got letters missing. <laughs> That's amazing. So it's shaping the context. Yeah. It, it is, yeah. And also because yeah. you don't you don't want to you have to edit literally on the fly and you have to think differently. And you also don't want a line to hang over either. So you don't want to like I, I try and avoid split split at the end of a line and hyphenating words and things like that. And then you get to the end and you've got like two words to go on the, the last line. Um, and that would mean going on to the next page and you think, no, I can't do that. So I'll drop two words somewhere. So yeah, this editing on the fly is a completely different ball game. Really yeah. interesting. I love words, as you can tell. So it just it's, it's a fascinating process. Massive thanks to Phil for chatting with us. You can direct your internet browser to terrascope.co.uk where you can read current reviews by Phil and his merry band of contributors and while away an afternoon or more reading through the full Ptolemaic Terrascope archives. And that's it for us at Rock Rit. As always, thank you so much for listening. If you like what you hear, please consider leaving a review. Please consider rating us and telling a friend about us. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter. Our handle is at rockcritpod, and you can DM us there. Take good care. One more episode this year. We promise it's going to be a really good one. Bye for now.